Hello and welcome to the Mike Figures podcast and um, I'm joined as usual by Ali Avalon, my friend. Well, Mike, I was thinking maybe we could talk about the Cannes Film Festival because it just wrapped and I know for a fact that you've had several experiences there and I've always been fascinated by it. So when was the, um, the first time that you went there? First time I went was with my first feature film, Stormy Monday, so it was, it was a great thing. I was in the director's fortnight. It still was pretty much the old can things hadn't become so commercial then but for me first time director uh, it was an amazing experience sting came uh, manly griffiths came sting at that time could not have been more successful as a pop star so when they did the screening both Melanie and I got locked out uh, because there was such a crowd for staying and they, they suddenly closed the doors to the cinema and wouldn't let anybody, and I was hammering on the door going, it's the actress, you know. That was my first memory of it. And it was super exciting because you met people. Um, I met uh, Clint Eastwood. Um, he'd seen the film and invited me to lunch and that was fantastic. I mean, he was staying at this fabulous hotel, uh, the Ducap just mm. outside of Cannes and he invited me to lunch and we just talked about jazz it was incredible because he had the film about Charlie Parker there right he'd just done the Charlie Parker film yeah he loves jazz piano he's a good boogie pianist himself and later on actually we both directed films one each in the Scorsese history of the blues series mm. he did piano blues and I did British blues so uh, I had this great bonding moment with Clint couldn't have been nicer and then as a result of that he then offered me another film and sadly that, that was the end of my relationship with Clint Eastwood because I, it was called The Rookie The Rookie starring Charlie Sheen and Clint Eastwood has a reputation for he, you know, he just calls people up directly he calls his actors in this case he contacted me directly offered it you know as an exclusive offer it was so flattering and I read the script and even though I'd only done one film I'd already written another script which was Liebestrom which I was very anxious Eric Fellner who now runs Working Title yeah. he was the producer on Liebestrom so it would have meant not doing Liebestrom straight away which any wise person would say well Mike you could have done that next you know Clint Eastwood's offering you a movie yeah but my instinct was, and remember also, I was already in my late 30s. It wasn't like I was a you know, 22-year-old, you know, like yeah. I had been sort of around the block a bit. So I turned him down. Mm. I'd also at that point been offered two other scripts, actually. Um, one was The Hotspot, which um, I really liked. And that's a whole different podcast. It's such an interesting story. And the other one was Internal Affairs. Mm. Yeah, so I, for one, would have been really interested to see what you did with The Rookie because they showed that on TV in Turkey when I was a kid all the time. And right. I think you made the right decision. Clint was so pissed off, you know, that I'll come back to Clint in my one of my next stories. But that was a lovely experience. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was my first can. I have nothing but good memories of that. And that it was then a lovely festival. Mm. Well, certainly. It helps if you've got a movie there and you're you part know, of the action you're part of the action and suddenly you feel like a grown-up filmmaker mm. you know so that was that was pretty cool and the film got a good reception there but yeah very nice screening um i mean director's fortnight is not quite as high pressured as as the main festival so 
So that was your first time, and I think the second time you went would have been for Browning version、mm-hmm. in '94. Yeah, and yeah. you were part of the official competition then, I think. I was. It was、uh, so that that was fantastic to be recognized in the official competition. It's a big deal, you know. Yeah, huge. I mean, I kind of take the piss out of it, but、uh, you know, it means a lot to filmmakers. It's it's still very highly, and at that point, still very highly respected. First of all. I'd had a rocky couple of years. I had Mr. Jones, which was really, really grueling time, and then I knew Ridley Scott, and he was the producer on the Browning version, and I ended up directing that. My relationship with Ridley, and I really like Ridley, but as a producer, he's very tough.、Mm-hmm. We definitely didn't get on as director producer. I mean, Ridley likes thinks of producing as being actually the producer runs the show. So he wanted me to use his cinematographer, his choice of actor, which would have been Anthony Hopkins,、mm. etc., etc. And I didn't want to go down that road. So, and I kind of, I'm quite a forceful person, so I, I stuck to my guns. And our relationship had, by the time the film got, you know, finished,、uh, was pretty rocky actually. At one point, we we almost descended into fisticuffs in Wardour Street. Literally, like it, we were so close to having a punch up. It was a Paramount picture. Sherry Lansing was the head of Paramount. We got this amazing, you know, offer to to screen the film, and we screened the film. Now the sub story here is that I just got a new agent, Robert Newman, who's、mm-hmm. been with me ever since. And I was using the time in Cannes to literally do maybe thirty or forty like visits to get money for leaving Las Vegas,、mm. which was my next project. And that was my passion project. In LA, we'd been everywhere: Miramax, you know, Fox Searchlight, every sort of so-called indie label, and they'd all turned us down. So Robert said, "Look, let's use the time in Cannes." So I did a deal with the publicity people on the Browning version. What should have been four days of press, I compressed into two days,、mm-hmm. and then I used the extra two days with Robert, and, we, and eventually we did get the money. So that was, and that was fantastic, success, successful. So I was kind of super busy while I was there. So anyway, we did the screening. It was a fantastic screening. There was like a ten-minute standing ovation, which was kind of odd because Ridley and I were stand. We had to stand up. We're in the spotlight, and you know, it's an interesting thing when people are clapping. I was going to say I never found out how to deal with success, or. A praise, you know.、Mm. I always feel very uncomfortable. I'm much happier when people don't like my stuff. You know, I'm sort of used to it from performance art days. But you know, they keep clapping.、Oh, bravo, bravo! And you know, at some point, Ridley and I had to hug each other. <laughs> it was the most bizarre moment I think for both of us. You know. Anyway, it it had gone well. So we go back to the Ritz Carlton, which is our kind of by now. It's after the screening. So the lobby famously is teeming with celebrities and. So I'm with Sherry Lansing, head of the studio, Ridley Scott, and my team. You know, and on the other side of the lobby, I see this guy Jeff Berg.、Mm-hmm. So Jeff Berg is the head of ICM, which was my agency. Wow. Jeff Berg was officially my agent. I had left the William Morris organization because Jeff had basically, you know, yeah, plundered me and said, "Come, come to us. I will be your personal agent." I'm very powerful. I did that, which is some ways I really regret. I mean, there's a wonderful moment in、um, David Niven's book, "Bring On the Empty Horses," which is a great, great film biography, 
where he says the one regretful moment in his life is when he dumped his agent because mm. things weren't going well. And I have the same feeling because I had a really nice agent and Jeff Berg seduced me and I went because he said, I can make th more things happen for you. And he didn't. I never heard from him again. Basically, once I went to ICM, I never got him as an agent. I was just back, back in, the, in the factory, right? So suddenly I see Jeff Berg, my agent, on the other side of the lobby. He sees me and he sees Sherry Lansing, head of Paramount, and sees Ridley Scott. And he comes over and he goes, hey, guys, how are you? And we have this whole thing. And then he looks at me and goes, Mike, what are you doing here? So I say to my agent, my film is in competition. Sherry went, they just, Mike just had a screening. They got a 10-minute standing ovation. <laughs> Jeff Berg goes, that's great. Oh, wow. Are you in town for a few days? Should we try and catch up and have a coffee? So lunch. In front of the head of Paramount, I kind of go, wow, what's the signal here? You know? And thank God I'd met Robert, mm. who was at ICM then. So he then became my responsible agent. He got Leaving Las Vegas together. He totally supported. And since that time, God bless him, has totally supported me in, in everything that I've done. And when I need a, a big gun, I always call I call Robert, even though I'm based in London now, you know, he's in L.A. Yeah. Well, my memory of um, the Browning version is that it's just, it's such a great film, but it's also such a great performance by Albert Finney, who I think was one of your heroes growing mm -hmm. up, if not your hero growing up. Yeah. And it's just such a performance where it, 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 this is my memory of it, of a man who can't really feel or who can't really show his feelings. Mm. And, you know, I would have thought that he would have won quite a few awards for that. Mm. Did he? Well, again, the history of the film, I had my run-ins with Ridley, who was, he didn't like, to be honest, didn't like the film. Oh, okay. I mean, the reason we almost came to blows was when he said to me after my first director's cut, you got a, you got a problem. Albert Finney's got two expressions, <laughs> miserable and fucking miserable. And I went, anyway, moving on from that, you know, I then screened it for Paramount on the lot and... Sherry Lansing was, in, was sobbing by the end of it, absolutely sobbing. She said, no, he's going to get an Oscar for this, you know, through her sobbing and all the executives, you know. And up until then, it had been like chill, chill. Nobody was really, nobody bothered to say hello to me before the screening. And suddenly it was like, Mike, come to my office. Pure Hollywood story. So we go to Sherry's office and she's, you know, super sweet. And she went, Mike, it's such a great film. You know, this is this, big things for this. Um, but first thing is, we've got to put real score on this. I went, well, I'd done the score. And um, said, no, we've got to get a proper score. And uh, promptly fired me as a composer because right. they loved the film so much because they wanted to get a real composer. And I remember my son Louis saying to me afterwards, he said, why are they so stupid? Didn't they realize that one of the reasons she was sobbing at the end was because of the music, you know? And I know exactly how to manipulate people with music. The end of this story is the theme that made her cry ended up as the theme, the main theme for leaving Las Vegas. Because mm. um, I don't throw my stuff away. And I know it was, a, it was a very emotional piece of music.
So uh, yeah, so Ridley fired me as the composer and um, they brought in someone else. And I had the kind of humiliating experience of having to sit with a composer. And I'd already gone through this on Mr. Jones uh, and Ridley Scott, while well, Ridley explained what the music should be doing on the film. So by the time the film got released, although I still love it as a film, mm. it's got this very, very different vibe on the music. It's trying to be like an Anthony Hopkins film. It's trying to be like Remains of the Day or something. Merchant like that, Ivory. You know, and have that kind of, yeah, it's got like full orchestral score. And to me, Albert's character was much more kind of like a guy who'd probably grown up in the late 50s and 60s. He would have been a who's super hip. He would have been a jazz fan. He would have been listening to Chet Baker mm. and you know Jerry Mulligan and you know the hip people of that time, Dave Brubeck or whatever. But no, they had to make him classical, you know. So, so at that time, the festival was run by a man called Gilles Jacob, the quintessential Gilles Jacob from France. So Gilles Jacob had this imperial-like air about him. You know, when you met him, you knew he was very important because he exuded importance. Very thin, wraith-like kind of character with silver hair and a very wet handshake. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm walking down the croisette and Gilles Jacob, who I had met, stops me and he goes, and he's full of smiles. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, the performance is incroyable. <laughs> Albert is going to win the main prize for acting. And I went, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, meanwhile, I'm thinking, how do you know? We're only kind of halfway through the festival and you're not on the jury. I mean, you're the head of the Cannes Film Festival, but you're not. By the way, the head of the jury was a man called Clint Eastwood, right? By the way, Clint Eastwood is a great fan of Albert Finney's and they, they kind of know each other. They knew each other. Same generation. Yeah. So it's kind of, but I'm thinking, okay, that well, amazing news, but how do you, but really? He said, but there's one thing, Albert has to come to the festival. Now at the end of the rap of the Browning version, Albert had said to me, I just want you to know something. I will never see the film because I never see my films. I had a wonderful experience making it and I hope we do it again. And let's be friends, but I don't go to festivals. So I was like, oh, he said he has to come to the festival. I've spoken with Ridley. We will send a jet for him. And I went, okay. Ridley then backs up and said, you've got to call him. You've personally got to call him and get him to come over here. He's got, you know, he's got to win the prize. So uh, I had to contact Albert. And the thing is, Albert had got rid of his agent, didn't have an agent. He just had a lawyer. So the only way to get to him was through the lawyer. So long story, I finally I, I get a phone number and it's, in Ireland and it's a stud farm. Albert loved the horses. He loved betting on the horses, but he also owned horses. And I called him up and I said, how are you? He said, I'm having a baby. And I went, what do you mean? He said, my, my mare is in stud. Mm -hmm. She's about to foal and um, I'm, I'm here for the birth. And I went, oh, because my next question is, you're going to win the prize at the Cannes Film Festival and they need you to be here. And he went, Dear boy, <laughs> or what's that effect? He said, a long time ago, I realized that when people ask me to take my violin to a party, they never ask me to play. And he said, I don't go to festivals, you know. And anyway, I'm having a baby, I can't leave. And I thought there's no point in arguing with him because I also love him. And uh, he'd already told me. 
so I, I did what I had to do. So um, I said, okay, I'll, but you know, I'll uh, I'll keep you posted on the awards. <laughs> so then I have to go for a meeting with with Jules Jacob. And somehow I see him again, and I said, look, and I I do my best acting of like you know, Albert's really sorry, but he's you know he's literally having this baby horse and baby. <laughs> and Jules Jacob's face just goes to mask mode and, he, and then he literally he just, all he says is then he does not win the prize and he turns on his heel and he walks away and I thought that's so fucking corrupt number yeah. one um, really so cut to the end of the festival I go home Robert Newman and I have done our good work we finally got um, a company to pay for leaving Las Vegas so I'm in a good I'm in a good way mm. so then I went home I went home from the festival uh, early but of course the award ceremony is on the last night so um, Paramount said you know we don't know I, Albert actually is still you know the critics and everybody hotly tipped to win so you should come back because Albert's not going to be there so we need somebody to pick up the awards so they flew me back for just the closing ceremony and uh, so of course I sat in the audience and of course Pulp Fiction wins Mm-hmm. And then I bump into Mr. Clint Eastwood in the lobby, and I, I say hello to him, and he, and again, he just cuts me dead. He turns on his heel and he walks away. He doesn't even say hello. That was my number two in Cannes. Still, it must have been really cool to have been, you know, to have done the red carpet, you know, the suits, and just having been part of the competition. Did you, were you, did you remember a feeling of exhilaration when you were doing that, or thinking no. this is really cool? Or No, because, I, you know, I'd already, like, done five features, yeah. right? And in that period, Ali, I'd been beaten up, yeah. and I definitely had an education in how the studio system works, and how, you know, if you step out of line, they're going to screw you. The politics of Cannes. Mm-hmm. By then, the, the comparison with the first time, with Stormy Monday, and this time, was very telling I thought it had already become much more of a kind of like a red carpety rather than a kind of art house and I would say that the presence of Harvey Weinstein at that time heralded the moment when all the Americans suddenly started focusing on Cannes in a much more commercial way to the extent that now I think you told me the other day that you know you open and close with an American studio movie yeah so Top Gun 2 and I think it closes with Elvis which I kind of want to see that mm. movie, but it's... Well, I have to tell you, I want to see Top Gun too. I want to see it too, actually, yeah. I but... mean, actually, it looks like it looks like it's pretty good. Everyone's saying it. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. want to see it in the cinema. I want to yeah. see it big, you Me know, too. as big as possible. Me too. I'm actually really looking... I hate to say it, it's the one film I'm looking forward to seeing is Top I Gun mean... too. So this is 94, I mm-hmm. believe, Browning version, and I think you went back, I, I'm not sure about the year, but maybe early 2000s? By the time I went back, I had sort of pulled back my horns back to London um, and I was focusing on a bunch of things and at that point becoming really much more interested in photography. So around about 2000, I'd switched to digital from um, film as a stills photographer, bought my first Nikon digital camera, Epson printer and had taught myself Photoshop. Mm. I really started taking portraiture really, really seriously. And I did an exhibition in London at uh, the Proud Gallery in Camden. And the guy who ran that 
a very entrepreneurial guy, Alex Proud, he decided he was going to do a, a pop-up nightclub on the beach at Cannes. He liked my work and he said, do you want to do a pop-up photo show? And immediately in my mind was the idea of beach photographer, you know, mm. like synonymous with a certain kind of aspect of old Cannes, right? I went, no, that would be great. So I took my basic equipment with me and rented a light and a printer and so forth and set up a studio in this sort of boutique hotel. They had come up with a list of a few people, but you know, it was up to me to go and actually find people to sit. It's a right? great idea, I think. Yeah, and I thought, well, what could be better? Yeah. Um, and I'd always liked the idea of being in Cannes, not as a, somebody with a film. So I kind of like established myself and then, you know, started walking around the crossette and everything. And of course, immediately bumping into people and there were lots of parties where you would meet these people. The immediate result was fascinating because conversations would go a bit like this. Mike, hey, great, what are you doing here? And I'd go, um, I'm a beach photographer. And then there'd be like a moment of like, <laughs> and they'd go, is he fucking with me or what? And I said, no, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm setting up a photo show on the beach in a tent and um, I'd love you to come sit for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And there would be two possible results to this and they might say yes, as in, you know, Ken Loach immediately said yes. And I got these beautiful portraits of Loach, Jeremy Thomas and all these really cool people that I kind of knew a bit better who kind of got it. But people like, for example, Pedro Almodovar. Now, he and I had become quite close. Uh, We'd met at the San Sebastian Film Festival. We had friends in common. I had even helped him make connections with American studios and things because he really wanted to make his first American... He wanted to make a cowboy film. I would say we, we were friends, you know. I bump into Pedro and at the Vanity Fair party, which is literally crawling with celebrities and A-list people. Mike, how are you? And I kind of, great, what are you doing? I've got a movie here. And I went, no, no, I'm a beach photographer. What? I said, no, I'm taking photos on the beach. I'd love you to come and slip for me, Pedro. And at that moment, he basically spotted someone over my left shoulder and he went, hey, catch you later, and walked off. And that's the last time I saw Pedro. Mm. You know, it was very defining. But the photographs were great. Many people that, I, that I've subsequently photographed many times, I met there. It was really a an interesting experience and great to be like the observer. Much happier in those situations, I have to say, than being the, the, the subject. It's quite a surreal place. Um, You've been, right? I went in 2016 with a sort of a short film that we did with a friend. How, how did you get in? Uh, it was in the, comp- not the competition, but there was a short film library or something and we right. basically sent the film to that and that was it. Once you have a film in there, you get free tickets to everything. To everything, wow. um, as long as there are tickets available. So, right. a lot of the films that I saw uh, were either eight a.m., eight thirty a.m. screenings sure. or noon screenings, yeah. or I had to wait in line. But um, and how so, was your screening? Our screening was okay. I mean, we just sort of tried to find people to see the film, but you know, it was great. Like my friend flew me out there. We were there for a week. The weather was great. Where did you stay? He got an Airbnb, right. uh, so we just stayed there. As a as a young filmmaker, how how did it feel for you? It was interesting because you see lots of people like you, and there are a lot of sort of events that you have to go to to sort of and schmooze. But there's 
there's a really cool sort of ecosystem. And I think we talked about this before, that's sort of a necessity for sort of filmmakers to, to have access to, both mm -hmm. in terms of seeing films, in terms of sort of having access to sort of different countries, resources, because every country has a tent that introduces them, or you get to meet producers, you get to meet directors, actors, etc. Was it worthwhile? Um, it was. I mean, was it worthwhile? Of course it was as an experience. Of course it was worthwhile. But in terms of as a filmmaker, did opportunities... Um, no, no, they did not. Because we, I mean, ours was, there were 3,000 short films. But I'm very glad that I went because I got to see, for example, I saw L by Verhoeven, who's a director I love. So I'm and very so you glad. were there and you were living the life, as they say. I was living the life. I went to the Petit Majestique, which yeah. you recommended I go to. Uh, but I got tired yeah. after three or four days. I mean, that experience that we just talked about with me, I particularly liked because I was, because I was doing something. I actually was create, and I have something as a result of it, which is the opposite of what normally happens. You know, like the following year for me was the year of leaving Las Vegas, and so the the whole award ceremony circuit and everything. By the end of that, I was in a surreal kind of exhaustion, mm. of like I've been grateful for sure, but at the same time, you know, like just not used to being liked. Uh, and, and, you know, people loved the film so much, like that so much praise. I just I found it really unsettling. And it, and it was quite good with the next film when critics then, One Night Stand, got so drubbed by a lot of critics in, in America, one of whom actually, you know, the LA Times critic actually literally said, this film is so bad that it allows us to revisit Leaving Las Vegas and see that as an overrated piece of work, where he actually reneged on his own review and I thought wow and that felt better to me you know it's like okay I'd rather be neutral than loved because you know they're gonna you're just waiting for them to actually kill you because you know it can't last and it's never lasted with there's no director that has literally you know just had a love fest from one film to another that just doesn't exist also might sort of force you into a box where you sort of feel that you have, you have to deliver to... a certain product exactly yeah and we sort of touched upon yeah. that with certain filmmakers. Was that the last time you went to Cannes? I think I, w I went once more. I'd made a kind of super low budget film, which was very interesting. Part of which I'd, I'd actually shot in your hometown, yeah. um, in Istanbul. It was a thing called the Gumball Rally, which is a kind of rich kids, Ferrari owning, Lamborghini owning, you know, rally, where they basically go different places in the world and they basically just drive their cars from one place to another it's and yeah and I'd been invited to document the rally which I'd rather stick pins in my eyes than do and I said no but I could write a feature film around the event of the rally and they said it's coming to Istanbul I went oh well, that would be an interesting place to work and it was right in the middle of a big political moment there as well so there was like I remember our friend um, Yusuf. Yusuf, yeah. Or was it you? Someone had basically rang me and said, whatever you do, don't go out on the streets on Sunday. There's going to be a million people protesting. Mm. So, of course, me, I went, a million extras? Are you kidding? It's art directed for you. Yeah. And I went out and we shot a whole sequence, you know, with those million people. So I'd made that film called... Uh, Love Live Long? 
It's actually a cool film. Mm. Shot it all on kind of like really low budget DV and everything and improvised with two really good actors. Got a sales agent and, and basically this was the, the the flip side of Cannes. So all my experiences have been kind of diverse. I did director's fortnight, official competition, beach photographer, and now I'm literally in sales. You know, so they said, we're going to do a you know completely off piece. We're going to do a screening invite journalists and we're basically just trying to get distribution for the film so you're in the commercial end of it which I didn't mind at all I have to say staying in a kind of a much more low-end hotel off the beaten track you know quite a walk and and the same thing when you're bumping into the same people that you know and but you don't have a major film you know as a filmmaker these are kind of they're good leveling experiences mm. they're not comfortable always because you're are you admitting failure by being there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Certainly in their eyes, sometimes you are. You know, it's just like, oh, last time I saw him as a beach photographer and now he's selling some like thingy shot on DV. Personally, as an artist, I'm super happy. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, so I was talking about this to someone the other day about, about hanging out with the rich. They're only comfortable if you're as rich or if you're in the club with them. If you're not, they get very insecure because that could happen to them too. They could fall off their ladder. So things like the Cannes Film Festival. I'd like to make a feature film about those kind of experiences because as you know, the subject that probably fascinates me the most is filmmaking mm -hmm. as a drama, you know, like Time Code, I mean, Leaving Las Vegas. They all refer back to filmmaking, you know. That's my life, so pretty much. Um, I wanted to ask you over time, so let's say 88, Stormy Monday, and then Love Live Long would have been 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. and you touched upon it a little bit earlier, but about the evolution of the festival, right, and how it's changed, how it's gone from maybe it's just being about film to sort of something else. Well, I think when I was there as with the low-budget sales agent moment we just talked about was the year of um, Marie Antoinette, Sofia Coppola's yeah. film. And I remember watching, watching the firework display after the screening. I just thinking, what did that cost? And then noting that Sophia had, bless her, had said, I don't want red carpet, I want pink. Mm. So they basically changed all the carpets to pink carpet. And watching the flotillas of limos ferrying the celebrities from pink carpet to pink carpet, wearing these ridiculous, in my opinion, deeply ugly designer things and realizing, my God, the fashion industry and the cosmetics industry actually control this festival now. Everyone's photographed in literally blinding sunshine and they're using flash. And as a filmmaker, and everyone's shooting on kind of raw, you know, digital. Everyone looks so blindingly overlit, you know, that it puzzles me that they haven't, and with the Oscars, that they haven't kind of cottoned on to the fact that you actually need a special room with, with beautiful lighting and you don't need so much light and so on for these people to look good. It's just technology, the fashion industry and the cosmetics industry have all conspired to make everyone look actually not glamorous, look like the actually the dog's dinner, in my opinion. Well, you see some of those beautiful women and you know they're beautiful, You've seen them looking beautiful and they don't look beautiful. And the men look uncomfortable because they all suddenly have to like also now be fashionable, you know. 
It's very odd. And I, I think money is the root of everything, of course. And as, as the famous person said to me, you know, it's called the film business. And mm. It's called the fashion business. And mm. it is a, it's a multi, multi-trillion dollar business. And yeah, they, they run the show now. So I think it's over for festivals. Yeah. I mean, there is, they do have a use though, don't they? Because for, for example, up and coming filmmakers to have your film noticed, to have your, sure. to sell your film. Of course. One cannot get, you know, I mean, without Berlin, let's say, and, and Cannes and a few other festivals, nobody would ever know about, you know, these third world country films and so on. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, they do, they do discover films for sure. They still function in that way. Um, I'm not knocking them as a, as literally as a pure film festival. It's just that the structure of it is kind of out of control. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, because as I said earlier, because the Americans then focused on it in such a big way, you know, it's too important not to control. Yeah, I think they have a, well, maybe I should say we, but they have a habit of sort of transforming everything into sort of something American, you mm -hmm. know, so they turn maybe can into something like the Oscars I prefer the Oscars I have to say you do well it's a facetious remark I just would say that the Oscars are more honest in the sense that they never really pretended to be art house you know although you know over the years the Oscars have changed in their in their you know kind of films that they would now consider but by and large it's an industry situation there's, there's no pretense of like nouvelle vague type overtones or anything like that whereas can still functions on, on a, the memory of that kind of a, of an approach but actually i think they're just as commercial as, as the oscars yeah yeah i mean yeah the list of winners this year is sort of an interesting list so that that's kind should we take, should we take a little break sure. we covered everything i think i think we did yeah yeah um, let me just also just check so we touched mainly on can here and your experiences there but there are so many other film festivals um and i'm just wondering if you had sort of any favorites that you've been to any favorite moments mm. any festivals yeah I, I i suppose i have been to a lot of film festivals and it's an inevitable part of the game so there's the venice film festival yeah sundance of course there's the spirit awards my favorite festival in many ways is uh, camera image in poland mm -hmm. which has been in a number of different cities and has now settled in one city I've been to the Krakow Film Festival. The smaller ones have much more personality. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a kind of enthusiasm there. There's, and there's an absence of red carpet. Um, Spirit Awards are kind of fun because they're just before the Oscars. And I won a watch. Um, and I've still got the watch. It's a really nice watch. You know, not, a, not flashy, but it's very, very good. And I treasure the fact that actually, it's the only time I ever won anything that was other than a, a gong. You mm. know what I mean? I have also fucked up at quite a few festivals, I think, by saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or trying to be funny when they wanted you to be serious, you know, the Critics' Awards and things like that. Well, you would have, you must have been also on juries at several so many, festivals. Yeah. And that's always also been a disaster. Because of the politics or...? Politics, yeah. Twice I've been told um, when I've announced who the winner's going to be to the 
to the festival people, they said, no, Mike, you can't do that. <laughs> because so-and-so is coming and we've got to give him the award. So I'm going, oh, the Gilles Jacob effect. Mm. Um, and then I've stuck to my guns. And in one stage, in San Sebastian, I was booed by the, by the press. Somebody shouted, go home, you know, when I announced the winners. And it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of unpleasant, actually. And again, in Morocco... Luckily, I was with some interesting filmmakers. We all agreed that a certain French filmmaker was so pretentious that we weren't going to give him the award. We're going to give it to some Arabic Belgian filmmaker. And they hated that. That went through as planned. And they were very, very unhappy with that. Because I remember seeing a Russian film called The Return. Uh, I've forgotten the director's name now. And I told you about it, and I was like, yeah, I gave him an award at a film festival. It was the Mexico Film Festival. Fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. Great film, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, I did the Mexico City Film Festival. Um, I've lost track, actually, because, yeah, you're quite right. There are so many. You came to Istanbul. You did Rome, I believe, with Suspension of That's Disbelief. Right. I did Rome, yeah. I've uh, done Berlin. Berlin, times. of course. Yeah. yeah. San Sebastian, you yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Um, the funny story was Venice. So I was head of the jury of the, what I call the Ghetto Awards. It was like, we should do a digital section. You know, it's like meaning they don't really care. So I was head of that jury because of time code, basically. But, you know, immediately I got there, I was like, we're sidelined. I mean, this is not taken seriously, right? So um, I thought, you know what? I've got a lot of time on my hands. You know, I, why don't I make a film? So, and I had my my little camera with me and everything. So I decided to make a documentary about the Venice Film Festival, about my experience of being there. It's, it's quite nice. So I just, we were staying in this hotel in the lagoon at Venice, which was formerly either a penal colony or a monastery or something. It was now a five-star luxury hotel, but there's nobody on the island. So it's pure Kubrick. So I thought I have to shoot the hotel a la Kubrick. So I did. And um, I remember that one of the guests of honours was um, Lauren Bacall. Mm. My friend Danny Houston was in the film. Nicole Kidman, who I had been, you know, been pals with when she first came to Hollywood, she was in a film. Um, so I'd bumped into all these people and, and I put myself in many instances with a paparazzi. And, and, and I wanted to film the red carpet and things like that, you know, from their point of view. I was having fun, and I, each day, because I, I was bored, there was nothing to do once we'd watched our films, yeah. you know. And that. There were a couple of nice films, and I did give the award to a wonderful film. And I'd just go off and I'd shoot stuff, you know. So come the end of the festival, and they basically say, you know, uh, there's going to be a big live award ceremony. But, you know, Mike, there will not be time, unfortunately, to have the video awards in that one. So that, you know, you know just come to the party. So I decided to get drunk. So I got, and there was, you know, these endless champagne receptions. So I didn't, no, I didn't intend to get drunk. I did get drunk though. And so by the time the award ceremony arrived, it's going out live on the on Rye television. The real jury members are, are sitting there, you know, and there's Spike Lee and there's all these, Sophia Laura and all these people. And I, I took my camera with me. So I was just filming the whole award ceremony and, um, Suddenly, somebody comes with me. It's been a change of program. Actually, there is time now <laughs> for you to give out, to give out the award, right? And I have to be honest, I'm drunk, you know. But I've got my camera. I'm thinking, great, this is a great shot. So when they announced me 
to give out the award, I just turned the camera on and I filmed the Steadicam guy filming me going up and I've got the camera and I go past Woodge and I remember catching Spike Lee's face and him going like, what are you doing? You know, everybody like, what is he doing? I was off my face. So I get onto, and I remember kind of arriving on the stage and coming up the kind of this very attractive announcer, like a, with a heaving bosom and coming up and as she's sort of saying, Mike, Mike, and I kind of go, okay, and I turn my camera off finally and then they say, give out the award. And at that point, my mind goes blank because I'm drunk. <laughs> um, but I do give the award out to this to this lovely Iranian filmmaker who's since then become a really good friend of mine. And um, and then there's an after party, and Mike Lee has just won the award for um, Vera Drake, Drake, right? And so I just keep filming. And now it's dark, so I'm on night vision. And um, Scarlett Johansson wearing a very, very provocative low-cut dress and Helen Mirren are both in kind of a naughty mode. And so we're chatting and I'm saying, and they're going, what are you doing? I said, I'm making this little film. And they go, we should interview Mike. Helen Mirren says that. Lucky you. <laughs> so Helen and Scarlett and I go off to interview Mike Lee. At this point, the festival has turned into a lot of fun for me, right? Yeah. And we get to Mike and he takes us seriously. So Helen goes, so Mike, how does it feel to have won the award? And he goes, well, you know, they turned it down at Cannes and this, that and the other. And I feel that, you know, tonight there's been a kind of endorsement, you know, and the girls are just giggling. And he suddenly gets it and he kind of goes, you're not taking this seriously at all, are you? And at that point, I hear whoops. And I turn around and Scarlett with the camera, Scarlett has literally just poured a large glass of white wine down her bosom. And she's going, oh, and I pan back to Mike and he goes, you're definitely not taking this seriously, are you? And then the next day, I'm traveling back and I find myself sitting next to Mike on the plane <laughs> back to London. And he's chatting and he's got the award and everything. And he's kind of like, I'd say he's pleased, but at the same time, he's still angry in some way about the Cannes Film Festival. Mm. And he suddenly starts talking about, he said, I saw your film, by the way, Time Code. And I went, oh, did you now? And he said, you cheated, didn't you? And I went, what do you mean? And he said, that's not one take. He said, I saw it. I could see the cuts. And I went, did you see it in a cinema? And he went, yeah. I said, on film? And he went, yeah. I said, it's called Real Changes, Mike. That's a real change, you know. He said, but anyway, I just thought, you know, did you ever think about re-editing it into one screen? Um, and let's face it, it's quite long and boring, isn't it? In retrospect, the one, one of the things I really regret in life is not having the wit and speed of kind of response to say, let's talk about Vera Drake. Have you ever thought about putting it on four screens at the same time? Because <laughs> <laughs> let's face it, it is quite boring. I didn't yeah. really like it, to be yeah. honest with you. But, you know, film, film makers reacting with each other. It's kind of interesting. We're very competitive. Yeah. We feel that we have to have very powerful, strong opinions about everything. Well, it's a very difficult job also, I think, yeah. and, and quite a lonely job. Yeah, and you do end up with very, you know, you end up with like, you know, okay, this is how I make films. Yeah. Or, or we all have a different approach. And it's all um, strong characters always sort yeah. of. Yeah. You know, Mike Lee makes, has made some very, very interesting films. And his, obviously his, 
his technique with working with actors has become you know world renowned mm -hmm. you know and lots of young actors really look up to that not my style those kind of improvisations but at the same time you you know it's pretty good as well so yeah that's my Venice Film Festival story thank you for sharing my pleasure